The spice melange, it's so cinnamon sweet I put it on most everything I eat It's addictive too And don't it make my brown eyes blue Dad got control over all that spice So Baron Harkonnen had him iced Tried to kill me too And don't it make my brown eyes Don't it make my brown eyes Don't it make my brown eyes blue So me and my mother ran away across Dune Got found by the Freeman not a moment too soon They said it was easier to leave us behind but if we went with them, it would still suit them fine. Now I'm dreaming of a huge jihad. And the freemen all think I'm God. Maybe I do too. And don't it make my brown eyes, don't it make my brown eyes, don't it make my brown eyes blue. Hang on, now I gotta. <laughs> got, I've got too much stuff going on. Um, I figured we're gonna be talking about rock music today, so I had to throw a folk bone out to Johanna. That was Tom Smith, who we played before because his music's Creative Commons. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, once upon a time, there was a vast evil empire. The Empire contained a state rich in natural resources, and the Empire sent a man named Vladimir to oversee it. Years later, a less oppressive regime came to power, but the rich oligarchs coveted the colony, and Vladimir led a new invasion, leading imperial troops under a false flag. None of the other nations came to its aid, but the freemen never lost hope. Today, we are not talking about Ukraine. We are talking about Dune. So before we get to that, what have you been up to since the last time we talked, Johanna? I went to New York City last weekend. Part of it was a family visit, but part of it was I finally had a chance to see Sleep No More, which has traveled around to other cities, but mostly it's been in New York. It's an interactive theater installation loosely based on Macbeth. It's kind of like imagining Macbeth, but as a film noir. And the way this show works is you show up at an appointed time, you get a cocktail, you wait in kind of a speakeasy style 1920s bar lobby, and then when it's your group's turn, you walk into the space and it's three stories high. It's about 10 rooms and each room is very, very well imagined and decorated as a different kind of space. So there is a psychiatric ward in a hospital. There's someone's, you know, private home. There's a graveyard. There's kind of an, an abandoned building. 
and you get to wander through these spaces and you interact, you come upon actors who are playing out Macbeth and they're on a loop, not unlike in a video game. And this was something I didn't know about the experience. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to give away any, any spoilers about it, but just if you're into theater, if you happen to, to like Macbeth, there, that's an added plus, but you don't have to know the play in order to enjoy this experience. But especially if you ever wanted to have the experience of being a live human inside a video game, this is the closest thing that I can imagine. Uh, and kind of weirdly, you're not the hero exactly. You're sort of more like another non-player character, which is kind of fun. <laughs> so highly recommend Sleep No More. It was it was amazing. Never ha had an experience like it. Uh, so if you're in New York, it's an expensive ticket, but absolutely worth it. Rosie, what have you been up to? Took a trip to Mexico and I got stuck there an extra week because I tested positive for COVID right before I was going to fly back. And uh, that was an interesting experience, but it did allow me the opportunity to finish watching Becoming Anna. Highly recommend. It was a great show. It was a great ride. Visually, uh, storytelling, um, every aspect of it was pretty fascinating. And I actually want to watch it again just to see what I missed because it, it's really good. It's really good. Highly recommend. And also... Mexico knows how to deal with COVID <laughs> a lot better than we do. I mean, they, they mask up everywhere. There are testing stations everywhere. It's inexpensive to get tested. We could learn a lot from them, but it was a great experience. I had a lot of support down there. Everybody was nice. I ended up flying home by myself for the first time. Flying by myself from another country back to the United States all by myself. At 47 years old, I'm pretty proud of myself that I did a good job, but it was fun. It was fun. I can't believe I said I having COVID was fun, but it actually wasn't too bad. Wow, you are a champ. That that's <laughs> quite quite a pandemic adventure. Yeah, and in all fairness, like I wasn't you know deathly ill. I didn't even know I had it. I thought I had allergies, and I thought I was fatigued because I work from home and don't get a lot of exercise. And when we go down there, we walk everywhere. So I was like, I'm just tired. You know, I I'm out of shape. I need to you know. Nope. <laughs> it was COVID. <laughs> it was COVID. But, you know, so, and I had been, already been through the worst of it before I sent my partner back home. You know, he was like, well, I feel bad not staying. And I'm like, we need somebody at home. Just go home. I'll be okay. You know, I've stayed in Mexico enough times. I'll be fine. And actually, you know, sometimes you throw something out to the universe, like in my case, I need a break because I hadn't taken a break in a very long time or gone on vacation or anything throughout the whole pandemic. And then and then the universe dropped a whole week to myself into my lap unexpectedly. I'm not complaining too hard. You know, it could have been worse. I could have been really, really sick. I could still be down there. You know, I could still have tested positive, <laughs> you know, but I'm here <laughs> and I'm thankful. So, it, you know, it's all good. You know, I haven't been reading a lot lately. And I've noticed my reading has dropped off a ton, even since we started doing this podcast. Like at the beginning, whenever, whatever we did, like I would read the Tarzan novel before we did it. I would read the James Bond novels before we did it. And I have, haven't been doing that. And I've noticed all my reading has dropped off a lot. And it's gotten down to the point where I like read maybe a page out of a book, you know, and then I'm done. And I thought, just like everybody else, I'm distracted by, you know, all our mobile devices, you know, and instead of reaching for a book, I'm always reaching for my phone or something else. And 
And that's not it. I finally figured out what it is because I started to read Dune for today. And I realized that my eyesight has been going bad before the pandemic started. And then I couldn't get an eye appointment for all the pandemic. I still don't have one until like next month. And I noticed that it's very hard to read. So I'm already a slow reader. It was slowing me down more and more and more. And I didn't realize it. You know, I just realized that I was becoming a slow reader. So to it got to the point where I was like down to like reading a page would take me a long time. And then I'm like, okay, time for bed. So I need to get my eyes taken care of. But in the meantime, I started reading Dune, which has been on my list to read for a long time. I probably read it way back when, but it's been a long ass time. And I thankfully started reading it way back. Like, I think we were still doing Showgirls when I started it, which thank God I started it that long ago because I got all the way up to this weekend. Friday night, I was like reading it all after work, all the way till bed. Saturday, I read it from when I woke up to when I went to bed you know, I was going to watch Dune last night and then it just got so late by the time I was done with the book that I watched it this morning. (laughs) (laughs) The main thing I want to talk about with regard to the book is whenever I read something like this, I always sort of imagine in my mind the movie. Like if I were making the movie of this, who would I cast? So I've got a new segment I want to do on the show, which is dream casting. Oh, I love it. (laughs) If I was making this movie today, this is kind of who I was imagining in my mind I would cast in these roles. So here's what I was thinking. Princess Irulan, Bargo Roby. The Emperor, Shaddam IV, Jeremy Irons. Yes! (laughs) Chani, Tessa Thompson. Stilgar, Gerard Butler. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) You guys can see where my mind went with some of these. Raban, Jesse Plemons. Mm. Piter, Tom Hiddleston. Oh, yeah. Dr. Yui, Adam Driver. Ooh. Yeah. Dr. Liet. Kynes, Ian Glenn would be the first choice. Brad Pitt, maybe a a second choice. (laughs) Okay. Thuffer Hawat, Jeff Bridges. Okay. Okay, this next one, I swear to God... I try to not pay attention to what's coming up on our radar. We're doing Dune, so we're obviously going to do the new Dune. And it turns out they cast exactly the person that I would have cast. When I went to to look, I'm like, oh, that's who they did use. Duncan Idaho, Jason Momoa. Okay. Yep. (laughs) So apparently they thought, someone thought like I did, because I thought he would be perfect in that role. And I'm anxious to find out if he was. Baron Harkonnen. Okay, so I only came up with two people that I really liked for this role. And one's a little young. And one's a little old for the Baron. So 
first one, a little young, but I think, and you know, of course he'd have to do the fat suit. He's, he's, uh, slimmed down a lot, but John Goodman, I think could be the Baron. Oh Mm. my gosh. Yes. (laughs) But even cooler, not quite as menacing, but more fun. William Shatner. Oh yes! My <laughs> oh my gosh! I would love to see William Shatner in a villainous role. That would be so much fun. Yeah, we never see that. That wouldn't that be great? Okay. Yeah. Gurney Halleck is not only a warrior, but he's also a is kind of a musician. But I think of him as being kind of rough and tumble. So I thought of Tom Waits. I thought maybe Sean Bean, but I finally settled on Liam Neeson particularly as we saw him in Ballad of Buster Scruggs. For Lady Jessica, Charlize Theron. Oh, yeah, definitely. Throw yep. you guys a bone here. For Duke Leto, Gary Oldman. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Everyone! Here for All it. All roads lead to Gary Oldman. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and for Paul Atreides, Finn Wolfhard. I think he looks the part. I think he's the perfect age. I think he's a good actor. The my top pick for Paul Atreides. Hmm. That's that's a really He's a little young though, isn't he? Or maybe he's just like in my mind he's always going to be 11. Well, in the book, <laughs> in the book, Paul is 15. All right? Hmm. Yeah. That's how old like I think I think Finn's like 18 now. Um but mm-hmm. He's somewhere in his late teens, you know, so he's right on target for for playing Paul. Um, okay, and then as a little added bonus here. The music, I found the perfect music for this. So for score, I could go with any sort of composer. You know, there are a lot of people who could fill that gap. It being me, I would probably choose somebody like Trent Reznor because that's just my taste. Right. (laughs) I also like, in addition to the score, like when a film just nails the songs, Mm -hmm. right? Like Marvel's really good about doing this. I think about like how Taika Waititi chose like uh, Immigrant Song Mm -hmm. for Thor Ragnarok. That was amazing. I was listening to this as I was reading the book and I was like, this is the perfect album for this movie. And we would use all the tracks somewhere in the film, okay? Black Sabbath's Master of Reality. All right? So for those who don't know it, I'll run down the track list real quick. It's only got eight tracks. It opens with the song Sweet Leaf. And if you've ever, <laughs> if you live under a rock, Sweet Leaf is about <laughs> cannabis. But it could be about melange if you just heard the lyrics, right? Yeah. The second track is After Forever, which is a song about a messiah. The third track is Embryo, which is an instrumental. The fourth track is Children of the Grave, which is about a global revolution. Side two, first track, Orchid is an instrumental. Sixth track, so the second on the second side, is Lord of This World. No explanation needed for a song called Lord of This World. Mm -hmm. Track seven is called solitude it's about someone who lost everything even the status of their name and had to wander the wilderness and the album closes out with the track into the void which is about space travel 
This is the perfect album for this movie. Yes, it is. Nice pick. From Sweet Leaf to Into the Void, Master of Reality is my recommendation for the music of this. But we'll talk more about music. You're going to talk about it in the production notes, maybe? <laughs> A little bit, yeah. Okay, so uh, why don't we do that? We're going to start not with Dune 1984, but with Jodorowsky's Dune. This was the first film adaptation that was planned. The book came out in 1965, was a huge hit. And 1971, they start pulling together a film adaptation produced by Arthur P. Jacobs, who you would know from Planet of the Apes, among other titles. He brings on Jodorowsky to direct. Jodorowsky brings on Pink Floyd as a possible score opportunity so i'm sort of sorry that we didn't see pink floyd show up in the 1984 version i know know. i was thinking when i saw who was scoring it i'm like i would have gone with pink floyd (laughs) (laughs) like isn't that the obvious choice so brings on pink floyd first next brings on hr giger to do the concept art and figure out the ships the sets everything and you can see that some of that work that went into the 1971 Dune that never was show up later in Alien. Ridley Scott actually almost came on board to take over the project from Jodorowsky, but ended up with other projects as well. So Ridley Scott, another director in line for Dune before it eventually fell into the hands of producer Dino De Laurentiis, who optioned the title for nine years That was about to expire when he finally brought on board David Lynch to direct. At this point in Lynch's career, he had made Eraserhead and had just made The Elephant Man, which is an excellent film. Yes. And went from there to producing a big budget, high concept sci-fi film, which it's great that they gave him that leap. One of the only hang-ups, though, is they didn't give David Lynch final cut of the picture. And this is what he cites as the main fundamental problem, that even as early as when they were working on the script together, David Lynch already felt like it was a lost cause because he wasn't going to be able to enact his final vision. They were insisting that the film had to run at two hours 15 so that they could fit in the number of screenings per day in each theater that they wanted to in order to, you know, make the profits they were hoping for. But also they didn't want a space opera. They wanted an action film. They wanted Return of the Jedi Part 7 or, you know, something <laughs> something that was going to please adult Star Wars fans. And that was their main goals. They wanted to make Star Wars, but for grownups. So Dino De Laurentiis in 1980, so a few years before this, produced Flash Gordon. Oh, yes. I'm glad you brought this up. (laughs) It was made for like $20 million and it made $40 million. So it like doubled its money and it had sort of slightly cheesy source material. But then they were able to make something great out of it. And and they got Queen to do the soundtrack. I feel like they're like, let's do that again. All right. Except we'll get (laughs) like toto they're a big arena rock band you know they're hot right now we'll get toto to do the soundtrack we'll double the budget to 40 million that means you know for sure we'll make 80 million off of this thing you know (laughs) and like i feel like that's what they were going for and then and then they're like okay and who can we get to direct it david lynch you know (laughs) And, and he gets plopped down in the middle of this mess that's what it feels like to me 
Yeah. Well, I think some of it, though, is, I mean, just thinking about it in that way, you know, David Lynch sits down with Toto, you know, and isn't necessarily a big fanboy and, you know, was kind of skeptical. And then talking to the lead singer, they said, well, you know, we like the sound that we have, but actually, like, we want to do something else. Like, we've got all these musical talents and we've been sort of pigeonholed in this one very Toto direction. And so we ended up with a soundtrack that I'd say, you know, if you lined up 10 bands, I wouldn't necessarily recognize that it was Toto unless I already knew going in. Because they really went for a different sound, I think, based on Lynch's direction. But back to the budget, which I think is one of the most interesting production notes about this film. $40 million budget is not the biggest budget of all time, but it's higher than a lot of the other films in this genre that were coming out around that time. For instance, Return of the Jedi... 1983, so just just a year before this came out, had a $32.5 million budget and grossed $374 million. So just thinking about how much you, you put in and how much to expect to get out, turn to the Jedi setting the gold standard. As another point of comparison, another sci-fi film that came out in 1984 was Star Trek III The Search for Spock arguably the worst of the six uh, <laughs> films based on the original series. And that had an $18 million budget and grossed $76.5 million. And of course, you know, Star Trek has maybe much more beloved IP than Dune, but I found this shocking that that, that film was made with, you know, managed to gross $60 million in profit and somehow Dune with its $40 million budget, managed to rake in a, a paltry $30.9 million. So, so it tanked in comparison. Okay, so not to sidetrack things, but as a Trek fan, I gotta defend Search for Spock for a second because I think that the motion picture and especially that one that Shatner directed, um, Final Frontier are way worse than Search for Spock. All right, all right. So, the arguably the worst, you know, I I wouldn't I, I wouldn't buy that. But okay, not not I, not among the best of the series. I'm I guess I'm biased because Search for Spock of course means that there is less Spock in the film that they spend <laughs> most of the film without Spock and he's the best part or he's he's I think we get to see him but he's not speaking. He's not himself. He's, you know, kind of kind of zombified when he is re reborn on the on the new genesis planet but leonard nimoy directed search for spock and so i do i guess you're right we have to give give some points for and his direction is better than shatner's better so than shatner's, we will 100%. revisit this when we do trek this this oh, yes. conversation not over no, all right no, all i'm hearing is <laughs> leonard nimoy like that's what he did so he could direct the movie. He just was like, it's a search for Spock. And now I'm directing the movie. I freed myself up. Great. <laughs> I, I, okay. I, back, I, all right. back to the production. Yeah, we got to get back to Dune. So, um, so yeah, this, this is a huge budget relative to David Lynch's previous projects. And he really didn't like that he had to storyboard 
for this project because he likes to have freedom. He likes to have spontaneity and the, he'll have, you know, a whole army of 2000 extras all in the desert. And he's focused on getting the perfect shot of Kyle MacLachlan's eyelashes or something like that. Speaking <laughs> which, this was Kyle MacLachlan's debut performance, which I didn't know. And I thought he is one of the high points of the film. Star is found. <laughs> now yep. you see why we love him so much. Yeah, the the casting was was pretty interesting. Of course, you know, everyone, the first thing they want to know is Sting? How did Sting end up in this film? <laughs> and apparently David Lynch had seen him in another small film called Brimstone and Treacle and was really struck that by that performance and said, that's the guy. That's that's who I need. And Sting was, at the time that this film came out, he was on the rise. He was not a superstar yet, and he became one shortly after this film came out. And then, of course, everybody wanted to put Sting in their movie. The film started to fall apart pretty much from the very beginning, but uh, the fact that David Lynch didn't really enjoy the storyboarding process and he found himself as he was going along trying to repair the film while <laughs> while it was being made, you know, realizing like, oh, we didn't really explain that part there. And they're like, okay, quick, we got to film, film another scene. Or, you know, realizing that the pieces just didn't quite fit together. You know, once they did post-production and put in the special effects, the original cut of the film which doesn't exist to be clear this there this doesn't exist anywhere but it was originally going to be four hours long and um <laughs> that that's the film we want to see but yes um, it is it's, it doesn't exist apparently <laughs> i'm over here like i don't want to sit through a four-hour film i'd have to split it up over the whole weekend i can't pay attention that long <laughs> i remember at yeah. the time there was a rumor that there was like a four-hour european version and we spent so long and hard looking for that remember this is before the internet and everything so we were little scour video stores look where can i get the four-hour cut of dune doesn't <laughs> exist doesn't exist dang it there was at some point a two-part television version that did total around 186 minutes long, but it is nowhere to be found. One of the things that they ha ended up having to do as part of this editing down to the two-and-a-half-hour version was the voiceovers. I am really curious to talk about the voiceovers because it seemed like like, I couldn't decide, like, is this trademark Lynch, this weird voiceover thing? Or is this just, like, the the worst solution to a to an already terrible problem? But we will get to that <laughs> anon. The voiceovers were added in to help piece together what was now kind of a pile of scenes that was missing all of the meat. You know, they, they ended up with just the bread of the sandwich. You know, the bread's still pretty good, but, you know, there was a lot of good sandwich of Dune that we that we lost. Sorry, that was a terrible analogy. What's going on? It made sense to me. It's fine. Let's go to the lobby and hopefully it's not sandwiches. Yes, please. <laughs> Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. It's definitely not sandwiches. I actually ended up coming across a whole article about like a Dune themed dinner party. It's on pinchspicemarket.com and they have a Water of Life Empress Gin Dune cocktail. 
And so I'm just going to focus on this, but I wanted to tell you where to find this website if you wanted to do a Dune-themed dinner party, and, and I'll let you guys know, like, what they serve. But as far as the drink goes, this was pretty interesting. It's two ounces of Empress Gin, a half ounce of fresh lime juice, three ounces of ginger beer, one package or 1.2 ounces of freeze-dried strawberries, two tablespoons of sugar, and one to two limes cut into wedges. Now, this is supposed to be made like a cocktail that you can pour and serve for your guests. So it's more than just one cocktail you're making here. So you, you know, want to use like a pitcher or something. In a blender or food processor, grind the freeze-dried strawberries into a fine dust, place it in a shallow dish with sugar, and stir to combine. Two, use a lime wedge, wet the rim of the glass, and then coat the whole rim with the strawberry and sugar mixture. So it's supposed to look like the spice. Then you add ice, ginger beer, and lime juice to the glass. Separately, add the two ounces of Empress Gin. The gin is naturally blue, like the water of life, but when added to acidic liquids, it turns purple and then pink. It's just one part of their Dune dinner party. They also, on this website, have recipes for the Spice Must Flow Cinnamon Chicken Roulade <laughs> with turmeric rice dunes and tchotchke sauce, Madib prosciutto-wrapped dates, Tell Me of Your Home World, which, Tell Me of Your Home <laughs> World, Uzul, broccoli, and zucchini dune dish. That's what it is. It's a vegan dish, too. And then the boxes of pain brownie bites for dessert. <laughs> <laughs> which I've never thought of calling a brownie a box of pain, but, you know. Um, anyway, it's called PinchSpiceMarket.com, and I found it just by looking up. I looked up, I was like, I wonder if there's a Water of Life cocktail, and this was one of the results when I, when I Googled it. So pretty cool, and they have a YouTube video so you can kind of see the layout of the dinner, but I was really impressed that somebody took the time to pull things from the movie to create, like, a whole dinner party, a watch party, you know, to have friends over and come watch Dune. Because, it, you know, I, I really enjoyed watching this movie, and I could see how you could turn it into a whole thing, a whole evening with friends to enjoy the film. So, I have a love-hate relationship with this film. I don't think it's the greatest expression of his directorial talents you know <laughs> yeah on the other hand a david lynch failure is still way better than a lot of other people's movies so there's that on the other hand there's me the sci-fi geek who's like oh dune deserves so much better so i'm pulled in so many different directions with this and it doesn't help that even some of the effects weren't great I'm specifically thinking that uh, some of the space scenes, bad green screen or blue screen job, like compared to something Star Wars would do is like not even in the same ballpark. I thought that it was an interesting idea to try to use the nascent CGI for the shields. Yeah. But the technology was so primitive that it just doesn't work. You know, it's really hard to see them. It's hard to see the fight choreography. It's just kind of a mess. And that's before we even get into the plot, which is entirely summarized. It feels like every scene there's exposition in one way or another shoehorned into it. We're going to have, like, hear their thoughts. Or we're going to have... I mean, it opens with Princess Irulan saying, like, giving you the background. Okay, fine. 
Space opera does that. Star Wars has that long, endless scroll in the beginning. Okay, fine. I'm okay with that. And in the book, every single chapter opens with a quote or a passage from Princess Irulan. And some of them are pretty lengthy, you know? So, okay, I can see that. But then every hearing every character's thoughts, every voiceover, it just bogs the movie down. So... You just reread this. What I was trying to remember, isn't the book written in third person omniscient? Like, and I was wondering whether this was a very deliberate choice to to reflect the feeling of the book where you can hear all of the characters' thoughts. But I, I couldn't remember whether it's third third person omniscient or limited omniscient where you're mostly with Paul. Since you've just read it, do you do you remember? It's yeah, it's it's omniscient, third person like it. Paul's not even in every chapter, so it's not just Paul. It's mm. it jumps around from narrator to narrator. So it might be that we're hearing Baron Harkonnen's thoughts and stuff like that. We might be hearing, you know, a lot of it is Paul, mm-hmm. but not yeah all of it. Not even by a long shot is it all Paul. Mm-hmm. I think every single major character gets their time to like we see it from a lot of different viewpoints. Yeah. And that's one of the things that's great about it. It's one of my favorite space operas. You know, I decided a long time ago to try to read my way through the Hugos. That's not going so well because I'm a slow reader and they keep there's a new Hugo every year. And now they're adding retro Hugos and going further and further back. (laughs) Side note, when I worked in a library, I decided I was in charge of the fiction section. I was in the stacks a lot and had a lot of free time just stuck in the stacks waiting for people calling for a book. Right. So I was like, I'll start at A (laughs) and go to Z and read all the the authors I want, especially science fiction. So which is actually kind of works for science fiction, because in the first I only got to about C or something D, A, B, C, D. But in that Asimov time, starts you, hit, <laughs> you, you hit Asimov, you hit Arthur C. Clarke, you hit Ray Bradbury, you hit Louis McMaster Bujold, you hit Octavia Butler, you hit Philip K. Dick, you hit just so many of the best science fiction writers by chance have last names at the start of the alphabet. So you get a lot. Now, I never get around to, to Zelazny or something like that. But then when I went to go read my way through the Hugos, I found that a lot of the early Hugos were... Alfred Bester, James Blish, Mark Clifton. They're all toward the start of the alphabet, too. So I am well-read in the start of the alphabet. I hadn't gotten up to Herbert. (laughs) So I don't know if I had ever read this before. I think I did, but it was so long ago that it was a distant memory, and I'm glad I reread it because I forgot how much Star Wars took from this book. I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's why I thought Star Wars was doomed for kids. Because <laughs> it kind of was. But anyway, let's get into this. It opens with Princess Irulan, like, giving the sort of background to all this stuff. And even she's like, oh, yeah, and I forgot to say. Yeah. Spice is the most <laughs> important. Like, And I, I often wonder, like, d- did they go back and reinsert that? Because it almost seems yeah. like they did. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, by the way. Spice is the most valuable substance in the universe and you can only get it on one planet. I'm like, oh, well, you could have led with that. (laughs) Right. Details. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) One of the opening scenes we have 
the guild showing up at Emperor Shaddam the Force Palace and demanding that he do something about the spice. And right from the beginning, we see this weird creature suspended. And and this is all Lynch, man, because there's nothing like that in the book. <laughs> really? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I. but it's because he's human, right? And this was something that I had forgotten about Dune, that there aren't aliens, exactly. Like, every intelligent life form in Dune is humanoid. Even that hideous thing in the jar that is the navigator yeah and by jar i mean tank formerly human and they've evolved or something it's it's a story about humanity in the 10,000s ad and in fact i've heard it compared to the roman empire like a romanesque metaphor and i've also heard it like compared to medieval europe but to me it reminded me most of renaissance italy medici Borgia, like vendettas and knife battles. Well, a lot of knife battles and like poisoning. Poisoning is a big thing in both Dune and in what happened historically, you know, <laughs> you know, especially around these great houses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's like Herbert Orientalized it, right? So there's a lot of like borrowing of stuff or, or, you know, hinting at Middle Eastern stuff. You can really see that in the names of the characters. Yeah. What was interesting is Shaddam the Fourth. When I'm reading the book, and even the name suggests like it, there are two dictators in the seven, six, late sixties and seventies when he was writing this that immediately spring to mind. One is of course the Shah of Iran; it's the Padishah Emperor, and the other is Saddam Hussein. Shaddam, you know, but the physical description of him in the book not his face but his uniform and everything sounded to me like Haile Selassie who was another one in Africa and um it occurred to me wait wasn't Haile Selassie's birth name Tafari Makonan like it's Harkonnen except for just two letters off Mm -hmm. now I later saw somewhere online or something that he supposedly found the Harkonnen name in a telephone directory and thought it sounded Russian. He wanted them to have like Russian names, thus Vladimir. But I'm not so positive. I believe that because it's so close. Mm -hmm. The names are definitely one of the ways he orientalizes it, but there's a lot of other stuff too. A lot of other stuff. I always thought that these lines like the spice must flow (laughs) and he who controls the spice controls the universe. I always thought those were in the book. Neither of those are actually in the book. Really? Yeah. And my name can kill. Like, not in the book. (laughs) There are similar lines. You know, there are some similar things there, but not those specific lines. There was a club hit, late 80s or early 90s, that sampled Baron Harkonnen a bunch. It was called Spice. And it sampled that, the Spice Must Flow line. So that's why I think it's stuck in my memory. Do you remember that song? I'm trying to place it and I can't think of it. And I know if I pulled it up on my phone right now, I would be like, oh, yeah, I remember that song. I took my notes in the form of Cards Against Humanity cards that I wanted to create based on this film. Um, I love it. And at the top of the list, I have The Spice Must Flow <laughs> as, as, as one. Um, the Weirding Way 
as as another another card. That is in the book. Oh, okay. It is. So the weirding way is so cool because the weirding way and like basically between his fighting style, Paul Atreides' fighting style, and the Benny Gesserit training he's had, the mind tricks. He's a Jedi. Like, this is the Jedi. Like, in fact, the Jedi in this are the Bene Gesserit. Instead of it being uh, mostly women kind of thing, Lucas flipped that and it's mostly men. You know, later on we get some female Jedis, you know. But but the whole brother-sister thing is totally the Skywalker story. Oh, don't get me started. I could go off on Star Wars parallels in this for a week. Yeah. I have to say, I mean, I feel like George Lucas saw probably what was happening here and saw a lot of potential in it. But I I definitely, I've, what I remember about reading Dune is how creepy all of it was. It's for adults, but not even in the way that Game of Thrones is for adults. It's like the dynamic with his mom is real weird. Well, real weird in a way that like, I think George Lucas is like, okay, so we're going to make their complicated relationship with their father. And now suddenly it's mythology. It's hero's journey. It's Joseph Campbell. Like what George Lucas did with these kind of weird family dynamics mixed with sci-fi mixed with Jedi. It, it feels like he's tapping into a deep mythology in a way that Dune doesn't, I don't remember it being like that. I remember I remember the experience of reading it being like this is so gross. Like their his dynamic with his mom is so upsetting. I think the difference is Lucas tapped into like hero's journey type mythology whereas Herbert was tapping more into like Oedipal themes and really like that that side of ancient drama rather than mythology per se. Yeah, psychology more than mythology. Yeah. Yeah, but also the psychology that goes way back in ancient Greek theater. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that same creepy household stuff in the <laughs> Oedipus trilogy, you know, and in, right. you know, Medea and all of those. So I feel like that's more what he was going for. I think I'm going to add creepy household stuff. <laughs> Right. And let's be honest, too. Like, David Lynch was really good at doing creepy household drama. I mean, throughout his whole career. Look at Twin Peaks. You know? Who was Bob? <laughs> just saying. I don't even know how to break this movie down. It just drives me nuts. All right. Let, let me throw in some stuff that's class, that's just totally Lynch or somebody threw in there that's just not from the book. The Pug? What was up with the pug? <laughs> yes. I was about it. Yeah. One of the cards I have written down is Patrick Stewart carrying a small dog into battle. That was <laughs> that scene at the end when he's got the dog with him. is just so out there. And speaking of weird shit, that's not, not in the book. All right. So when they capture Thuffer Hawat, they poison him to make him work with them. The Harkonnens do. And the way that they do it is he has to like take the antidote daily. Now there's no description of what this is, but in this movie, they bring out a Sphinx cat in a box and there's like a rat attached and he's got to milk the cat daily. <laughs> like, well, 
what the hell? Like, yeah. I think you guys have been hitting the spice a little too hard here. Because yeah. this is yeah. just... I don't that remember that part. <laughs> that was messed up. And the and the super evolved human that wasn't a human, that's totally David Lynch. That took me back to Razorhead. When they had the, like, you'll have to milk the cat daily, I, I could hear Robert De Niro's voice from, like, Meet the Parents being like, you tried to milk it, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i have this written down a cat with a rat tied to it and no explanation <laughs> yeah yeah no explanation that's very david lynch just throw it in there and then he's gonna let it fuck with you the whole time <laughs> a lot of things that they like did that i think was just like dunk duncan idaho is presumed dead in the book but isn't actually they never say that he's dead and i think I haven't read any of the sequels to Doom, but I think he comes back later on. But um, they actually kill him on screen here. It's like, let's just simplify this as much as we can. Kill people yeah. left and right. Yep. Some pretty gruesome deaths, too. One of the things that I found in the reviews is the scene where Baron Harkonnen sexually assaults and lets his underling slave boy, whatever whatever you want to call him, meat sack. The death where he, un the heart plug, when he removes the heart plug, was... Really gruesome, really intense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I didn't like that. No. And then there's just things that I'm like, what? Like, there's one point where they, Paul and uh, Lady Jessica have fled to the desert, and the first people they encounter, this group of Fremen, I call them Freeman, they call them Fremen, whatever. They're like, oh, we'll take them into our house and ha they'll have sanctuary, you know? And I'm like, oh, great, someone saved us. And then they, Lady Jessica and Paul, attack the Freeman. And I'm like, what are you doing? They just said they were going <laughs> to give you sanctuary. Where, where did that come from? That happens in the book, but it's like a little more complicated than that. The Freeman are like more hostile to them to begin with. And it starts with a fight. And then they're like, wait, wait, hold on. You know, there's more to these people than we thought but that's not the way it plays out on the screen here yeah it doesn't piece together very well in the movie can we go back though there's a lot of really great stuff that happens before this scene in the fremen one of the ones i want to point out is david lynch himself appearing in the film yep as the guy shouting into the radio and just like a perfect lynch cameo when they go to rescue the people from the first sandworm attack which since we're doing this as a series on sandworms i do want to take some time i thought that they were like i mean the special effects throughout the film are not up to return of the jedi levels but i thought the rendering of the sandworms was scary the fact that they always seem to come with lightning was was an added bonus <laughs> it was, it was a storm very metal yeah they're, they're very yeah. metal sandworms yeah very metal yeah <laughs> totally added to how metal the sandworms are yeah i like how they did this when when they were doing the scene and kyle mclaughlin was like getting ready to climb on top of the sandworm and literally ride the sandworm and just to show to scale you see the whole the whole sandworm going by and it looks like a giant subway train or something <laughs> just to show you like how big these masks really are. By the way, that was a very Flash Gordon-y scene. Yeah. There's scenes in Flash Gordon where he's riding one of those air cars or whatever and there's like lightning in the background. They just did that except on a sandworm. Yeah. 
almost an homage to Flash Gordon. Like, <laughs> right, right. I don't know if it was intentional, but it looked like it to me. And like, oh, and Toto is playing like power chords during it too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. All right, guys. This is this is definitely peak eighties power metal sci-fi here right now. <laughs> oh yeah, and let and 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 you know, uh, Kyle McLaughlin's hair looked good in every scene too. Even after battle, it was still perfect. <laughs> Speaking of haircuts, no, I'm not going to sting. I want to talk about Patrick Stewart because yes, <laughs> I've never seen a bald guy with a mullet. Uh uh-uh, uh, it's a skullet. What? It's a skullet. It's a skullet. If you're bald, dude, and you have hair growing in the back, skullet. Maybe I should do that. Do it. <laughs> do it. Anyway, that I was like, okay, that was an interesting choice. Yeah, I really, I really wanted to see Patrick Stewart do at least one hair flip. Like, well, mostly know? everybody just had bad hair. Like everybody had like messed up hair, you know. Yeah. But Kyle McLaughlin and his mom always looked good. They always had good hair. The whole throughout the whole film. Yeah, it's true. Until mom lost her hair because she became, you know. Yeah. And I got to say that Sean Young always looks immaculate. She's almost too beautiful, like in everything. Mm-hmm. She, she's the reason she made the perfect android, because it's just like there's something inhuman about her. You know. Yes. Speaking of Sean Young, she's an actress who's had a very like, mm, iffy career with Hollywood. I don't know what's going on with her, you know, and uh, she, you know, she's Sean, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of, there's a, there's all sorts of crazy stories about her out there, but she has a YouTube channel, which is her initials, MSY, which is um, her, her initials, Mary Sean Young, pariah, all in caps, MSY pariah. So she knows how she's viewed. In Hollywood. But the reason I bring this up is she took Super 8 behind the scenes footage on the set and she put it all up on YouTube. And she actually will sometimes respond to people who post in the comments and stuff like that. This is not a like managed celebrity profile. It's worth checking out if you're interested in seeing some behind the scenes footage that Sean Young shot on Super 8. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is cool. But her hair... Perfect because yes, she's just immaculate. You know, that's, Mm -hmm. that's just Sean Young. Yeah. David Lynch, a lot like Tim Burton likes to use a lot of the same actors in his stuff over and over again. It's almost like Kyle McLaughlin to David Lynch is what Johnny Depp is to Tim Burton. Or Scorsese De Niro, that kind of a relationship. Yeah. 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 And, and it, so I, I just wanted to point out, you know, Jack Nance was in it. He had just been in a racer head. He had a small part, but he was there. Everett McGill was also in the film. He was a major character in Twin Peaks when that came out. Yeah. Well, just, uh, you know, his follow up film after this was Blue Velvet, which uh, <laughs> Dino De Laurentiis also produced. So, you know, speaking of bringing people along, uh, De Laurentiis actually gave him a second chance after Dune, apparently, and thank goodness because Blue Velvet, I that might be my favorite actually of, oh. of the films. Love that movie. I think that was the first Lynch I saw in the theater. Now I've seen the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune, and so I knew about it. I didn't know 
that this was for sure the same project handed off, but it definitely had that feel. So I suspected it was. And when you talk about surreal directors, only two come to mind back then, Jodorowsky and Lynch. So it was the obvious person to pick to take over, but it feels like they didn't let Lynch spread his wings on this. And it's way too short, way too much exposition. And I think they spent the money in the wrong places. I'll give you one example that really kind of annoys me, which is the um, melangenosis. Too much melange in the bloodstream causes their eyes to be blue. And they did this digitally. Mm -hmm. So it's this bright blue, which is not the way it's depicted in the novel. In the novel, it's like darker blue. And so at night, it almost looks like their eyes are completely black. It often talks about their inky blueness, like their blue within blue within blue eyes. So it's like all blue and it's really dark. And even in some of the dark caves and stuff like that, their eyes, you don't see any pupils or anything. It's just all black because the light's so dim. Here they use this digital effect where it's over their eyes to make it like this bright cyan and like that just isn't who the Freeman are. That would be like Jawas. <laughs> Even with hoods over their head, you would see these shining eyes, not very adaptive to desert life. So I have just a couple other random phrases that I wrote down, and maybe you can help me remember why exactly I wrote these things. I did not say this. I am not here, which I think is from the humanoid navigator at the beginning, but I wrote it down, I think, because it's just such a good Lynchian kind of line <laughs> to show, show up. <laughs> yeah. And the slow blade penetrates the shield, which I feel is, is another very quotable, somewhat dirty somehow. Um, <laughs> I have one too. <laughs> no man has ever been tested with the box. <laughs> Yes. I'm sorry. I, exactly. I made a note of that. Though. I was like, I'm 12. <laughs> what yeah. is wrong with you two? <laughs> I, I guess we went in with the wrong attitude. I don't know. Um... I feel like I should clarify something. I don't know if this movie made it explicit, but the book really does, which is the reason they use knives so much in Dune is the shield deflects anything quick that tries to penetrate it so yes. bullets will would bounce off of it but a blade is slow enough that it can go through the shield i don't know if you guys picked up on that but yes. that's why no. they say that yeah it's it's more the heightened <clears throat> theatricality of some of these sci-fi lines that and maybe it's heightened theatricality throughout but when it's seems vaguely sexual or not even vaguely sexual, then it becomes extra funny somehow. <laughs> Bring in that floating fat man. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what Lynch does really well, actually, is this this particular brand of heightened weirdness. I also have the juice of Sappho written down somehow, and I can't remember the circumstances but i think there's like a very clear reference to pleasuring women and drinking the juice of sappho and i i wrote this down <laughs> okay i missed that somewhere, somewhere yeah. i missed that i think i'm gonna have to rewatch it and figure out what where i was picking that up also i wanted to note that i feel like the doctor's revenge plot is kind of half-baked the idea that he's gonna send the duke in to poison Harkonnen 
this is his big plan. I don't want to talk about the new Dune too much, but it is something that I felt like made sense when I saw the new Dune. And then when I saw this one, it made me actually doubt the other film because I was like, wait a minute. Why? Why is this a plan? (laughs) Anyway. Okay, we'll get to that when we talk about the new Dune. Yeah, I just have one more quote to add, and this one's not perverted, but I just thought it was it was kind of funny because this was something that Patrick Stewart said to Kyle MacLachlan in one of the earlier scenes when he showed up. He told Paul that he wanted to spar with him or, or fight with him, and he and he was like, "I'm not in the mood," you know, just yeah, which was kind of weird how he said it. Um, and <laughs> uh, and and he was and Patrick Stewart was like, "Moods are things of cattle and love play, not." fighting (laughs) (laughs) cattle in love play yeah okay so a lot of these are things that didn't translate well from the book Mm -hmm. because they didn't have time to fully explore them what this is was that paul in the very beginning of this like there's no threat but he's like ducal air so he's always got to be training they're always trying to keep him sharp they're constantly drilling him and he he just wants to be a kid constantly one of these between Thuffer or Gurney or one of them is always coming to him. And he's got like, it's like he's in classes all day long. Mm -hmm. So that's where he's like, I don't want to, you know, that's kind of, you know, where that comes from. Again, all of this could be really well done. If it was spread out a little longer, I want to talk about the ending because it had one trivia question in it that I have gotten in the past. And I don't know if it was in Trivial Pursuit or if it was playing bar trivia or something like that. But I remember this being a big trivia question. What happens at the end of Dune the movie that never happened in the book? And that's that it rains. Mm. Oh. But so much of the book is about terraforming. So they are trying to get it to that ending. And... Jodorowsky had an even weirder like ending that he had planned for this. So I'm okay with Lynch turning it into his own thing and saying, okay, we're going to have it rain at the end. Seeing the ocean waves over the credits was a little much, but I swear to God for a minute there, I'm like, okay, at the end of this and they're all looking up and the water's falling from the sky. I was expecting, you know, I bless the rains down in Arrakis. <laughs> you know, like, because it was so much Toto, like, leading up to that. You know, that I'm like, I could hear it in my head. I'm like, they're going to play Africa, aren't they? They're going to play Africa. They're going to play Africa. <laughs> I know. I was waiting for the dun 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 dun. Yeah. <laughs> Give us something. Come on. Like, <laughs> I got to ask before we go, Sandworm versus... Nah, we'll do a Sandworm duel at the end of this between all the different Sandworms. Okay. Uh, a March Madness Sandworm bracket? I, yes. have, got, I have got it already created. <laughs> you so, put the geek in Geek Channel 8, Eric. <laughs> That's awesome. Give us a good review on whatever platform you're on, because... We're running a little thin on reviews. We could use a, a good, just like kick us a little review. Yeah, Joe, show some five star love. Uh, <laughs> or tell somebody else about it. Get somebody else to listen to the podcast. Tell a friend. You can, you know, spice their drink, whatever you need to do. 
That's right. The spice um, must flow. The That's spice right. must flow. If you want to communicate with us directly, we have an email address that is gc8podcast, letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. This is Johanna. Signing off. <laughs>